and welcome to episode 123 of Positive Regression, a motorsports analytics podcast. I'm Alan Kavana, joined as always by David Smith. On this episode, a look at mid-season crew chief changes. Are they worth it? Who do they benefit? And what's the real goal when doing them? We will tell you. That, plus our big Roval preview. But first, as always, David, let's start with something of a look back. This is episode 123. The 23 car just happened to win its first race for 2311 Racing, owned by a famous 23, Michael Jordan. David, not only one of the most famous people on the planet, but he also grew up, like you and I, a NASCAR fan. So let's celebrate a little MJ right now by looking back at the tracks and eras that made him a NASCAR fan. Because David, he hasn't been shy to talk about it. I mean, this isn't just a, a money deal for Michael Jordan. He is a North Carolina boy. He grew up going to races. Uh, there's video of him on motorcycle, you know, racing motorcycles himself. He has been a fan of motorsports. So uh, his fandom is not that strange of an idea to us. No, it's not. But curiosity got the better of me one night and I fell down a YouTube rabbit hole, as I'm sure some of our listeners can relate, and watched old interviews of MJ talking about what led to his NASCAR fandom. And he specifically mentioned, uh, he mentioned Dale Earnhardt and Richard Petty, that you sort of expect, but he, he called out Cale Yarborough, interestingly enough. He, he called him the original number 11, and that is in reference <laughs> to uh, his current co-owner and friend, Denny Hamlin. And this makes some sense because he was from Wilmington, North Carolina, the tracks that he traveled to. Uh, more, most frequently were Rockingham and Darlington in North Carolina and South Carolina, respectively. So when you consider that he had some kind of fondness for Kel Yarbrough, it makes sense, especially because Kel Yarbrough won a lot of races at those two tracks. He was a three-time winner at Darlington in the 70s when MJ was attending races there. He was a four-time winner at Rockingham during the same time frame. And it should be noted uh, well, two things. One, boy, did MJ pick two really good tracks to go to and watch races and become a fan. But two, his fandom, the birth of it, in going to these races with his father, that was an effort. You had to work hard to be a fan back then because all of this was before the 1979 Daytona 500. That was before races were aired flag to flag on big networks there. Uh, that, that was not the case at all. And when you consider the impact of the drivers of this era and, and yes, that's Kale Yarbrough, it's Richard Petty, it's David Pearson too. Their celebrity was local. It was, regional and it was largely word of mouth you had to see it see them in person to fall in love with them and i'm reminded of that in this circumstance it fostered the love of the sport for a current team owner yes but think about how richard petty and kale yarborough and all these guys carried this sport for a while without the true benefit of television, which is the biggest marketing platform eh, since, uh, well, before the birth of the internet, I guess. <laughs> but I, I think NASCAR owes a lot to the drivers of this era, uh, the promoters too, certainly, but the drivers especially. Uh, Alan, 
you're into pro wrestling. You're 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 hip to not just the WWE of it all, but the indie scenes in pro wrestling where fans don't really follow the brand, they follow the wrestlers. And that was largely the case when MJ was a, a young fan. For for NASCAR and the majority um of these races weren't televised. These personalities won over and created fans. And those fans shared the sport with their families. And that's built this into something big enough to even be placed on national television in the first place. And Michael Jordan, of all people, as luck would have it, was one of those fans. Yeah. And and still to this day, it's wild. One of the most famous people on earth in my book is a key part of NASCAR because of of how he watched it and how he consumed it in his childhood and in my opinion, that is some serious butterfly effect. Yeah, man. And now a cup winning owner. Uh, so congrats to Bubba and that whole team. But, it, you know, just to add another trapper to that story that you're you're talking, David. And I just think about, you know, when we were kids, you know, who who was who was the popular NBA team, right? It was Michael Jordan and the Bulls because they were winning everything, right? Go back to the mid 70s, David. Richard Petty, the champ in 74 and 75. Kale Yarbrough, 76, 77, 78. If you are one of those fans coming of age in that era, that's who you were. They were your Chicago, they were, you know, they're your Chicago Bulls, right? Our Chicago Bulls, if you will, right? Uh, back then, you know, there are kids who are Golden State Warrior fans for a reason, right? Because they dominated for a few years there. So Michael Jordan had Richard Petty and the run of Kale's championships, which is uh, just cool to think about. And uh, like you said, how he was able to uh, just kind of absorb that. You talked about Rockingham in the 70s, David, the 20 races at Rockingham, Kale and Petty won 12 of those. Uh, and, and the others were like Bobby Allison and David Pearson won most of the others. Uh, Darlington, surprising here. Th- this is a weird stat because you've got me looking all this up, David. Richard Petty didn't win at Darlington in the 1970s. No. I, I don't know if there's something to explore there at a later time, but that just, <laughs> that just you know, it stuck out to me because I was like, where the hell is Richard Petty's name? This is a big track. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And he was, I mean, he, he, and he spoke of just traveling with his father and his brother. I mean, he went, he, he says he went to Talladega too. I mean, he, he came in maybe at the right era and not only was it the right era for him, but it was the era that turned a lot of folks into lifelong fans that went on to share this with their families. And it's just, it's, it's kind of wild r- really to think about how, celebrity and the power of NASCAR was fostered without its most conventional tool. And also, Alan, it's cool because when I was a youngster in elementary and middle school, I was part of the demographic that wore Air Jordans and really liked NASCAR. And it would have been useful had I known that Michael Jordan was also a part of that demographic (laughs) that that he joined me with that because I kind of felt on an island uh, growing up there, even though I grew up in Daytona Beach, Florida, home of NASCAR. uh, I felt alone in that. uh, But now I know that in spirit, I was joined by uh, one of the greatest to uh, to ever play the game of basketball. Excellent. Good stuff. Good stuff. And uh, again, this was time just made this episode 123. The 23 car happened to win. So I'm glad, David, we had this discussion about Michael Jordan, the NASCAR fan. When your business is starting its championship run, nothing matters more than finding and hiring the best team. 
With Indeed, you have the power to build a dynasty by hiring more MVPs faster. Start hiring right now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Offer valid through March 31st. If you're hiring, you need Indeed because Indeed is the hiring partner where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. And Indeed is the only job site where you're guaranteed to find quality applicants that meet your must-have requirements or else you don't pay. Go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire to claim your $75 credit before March 31st. No matter how the last game went, anytime you take the field, you got a shot at greatness. Give your team the best shot at winning by recruiting more MVPs with Indeed. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. So let's get it started, David. And uh, a good topic this week here on Positive Regression because we want to talk about midseason crew chief changes. Again, something which sparked this idea was Booty Barger last week after 400 plus races as a crew chief. He got his first ever victory after a mid-season change at crew chief for Bubba Wallace. And this is the first mid-season replacement to actually win a race since 2017. So David, you had a great idea of looking back on some of the more recent mid-season crew chief changes to analyze kind of the true impact uh, of what happened during the season and, and maybe beyond to see how effective they were uh, how quickly they were effective, if at all. And I think it'll be a good discussion. So uh, we got a bunch to line up. So we'll just go through them one at a time and kind of discuss them and then go bigger picture after that. But David, let's start with the one in 2017. Justin Alexander replaces Slugger Labby for driver Austin Dillon. Um, and the highlight there, of course, is Justin Alexander wins his first race with Austin Dillon. It happened to be the Coke 600 and they got the victory. So when you look back on that, uh, obviously you would call it a success immediately, but what else do you look at? You know, much to my chagrin, I wrote an article for motorsports analytics that week after slugger lost his job and, and wrote that RCR has an Austin Dillon problem. He, he had burned through several crew chiefs to that point. And, uh, of course he goes out and wins, uh, the Coca-Cola 600, um, which, Hey, you know, it happens good for him. But the, the change itself, even though it brought, the win, it's questionable as to whether it provided an immediate impact. Uh, naturally, Justin Alexander and Austin Dillon have formed a good relationship. They went on to win the Daytona 500. They won Texas last year. It's a winning relationship. It's been to the playoffs, and it's a pretty good one, but at least initially, a little bit questionable. Uh, their speed rank um, with Austin Dillon when paired with Slugger Labby to that point in the season was 16th ranked as the 16th fastest team. And from the point that Justin Alexander took over to the end of the season, Austin had the 21st fastest hmm. car. So he actually got slower after the change. The green flag pit cycles, which we, we do need to focus on strategy because strategy does drive some team decision-making if uh, front offices don't particularly care for the for the brand <laughs> of strategy or the output that they're seeing they they might be inclined to make a move but interesting here slugger labby was actually retaining austin dillon's running position on 83 percent of green flag pit cycles after alexander took over that rate dropped nearly 20 percentage points to 64 percent so 
uh, Austin Dillon slower and not keeping his position as often on long green flag runs. The silver lining was that Dillon's average finish improved from 20.7 to 17.7. Those were the splits. And that may have been enough uh, positive momentum going into the next season, which Austin Dillon ended up winning the uh, the season opener in Daytona. And I don't know how long-term you want to look with this because it's been kind of up and down and uh, Justin Alexander left to three and then came has come back to the three. Uh, long-term, a good decision or positive decision, do you feel? I mean, I know it's been four plus years now. I think Justin Alexander deserves to be a Cup Series crew chief. So, and that sense it was the right call to make him a cup series crew chief. Um, but parting with slugger at that time, at least in that rules package, uh, I, I, I recall slugger getting popped quite a bit for penalties. And while, yeah, that can be problematic. It, it was in search of speed and building speed around Austin Dillon, who at the time was winless. Uh, he was just coming into his own as a fringe playoff contender, but he still needed something extra because RCR wasn't even as strong as they are right now. Dylan was not as good of a driver as he is this season. So there needed to be a little bit something extra. Slugger was providing that. So to go away from that was a pretty sizable gamble, I guess it paid off because they ended up winning. And so they made the playoffs that year, but the immediate impact was actually a step backwards, potentially in order to uh, take a step forward down the road. All right. Fair enough. Let's move on to the next year, David 2018, the driver, Casey Kane, the crew chief, Travis Mack is replaced for John Leonard. Now I, we've talked about this before. Uh, This was back with LFR and I, if I recall, David, you were a big uh, Travis Mack mark in terms of what he was trying to do with what is essentially, you know, a slow team, right? He, he, Travis Mack intentionally would try some things strategy-wise to create track position for a car that wasn't doing it itself. And if I remember the story correctly, he was ultimately uh, replaced because of it, because that management did not have the same vision. You have to understand that what Travis Mack was doing was really aggressive, and it was shorting results for a driver that LFR believed a lot in. I mean, this was still Casey Kane. He was driving for Hendrick Motorsports the year prior, so the organization certainly felt that they were better than they showed, deserving of better results, and some of this strategy that, uh, that Travis Mack was deploying was for uh, a shock bid at a race win because at that point in time, they were slow. They were the 27th fastest team when Travis Mack was at the helm. The only realistic way that they were going to win a race and make the playoffs, even with Casey Kane as the driver, uh, was to come out on top if a race broke truly weird. And that is uh, that is what stoked this replacement. Um, his retention rate at the time was 48%, so they were most often losing position on green flag pit cycles. John Leonard came in and got rid of that 
completely. It was a different <laughs> style of strategy. He was far more pragmatic, and he retained Casey Kane's running position on 88% of green flag pit cycles. The speed ranking did not change. They ranked 27th the entire season, regardless of crew chief. But the average finish increased from 24.0 to 21.1. Sounds small, but it was a little bit more sizable. Kane popped a little bit better, and uh, ultimately his his health concerns uh, took him out of the car. Regan Smith finished the season, and uh, and and that was it for well, for Regan Smith, and then for for John Leonard, who mm. actually acquitted himself very well as a Cup Series crew chief. Uh, we didn't see him back on a Cup Series pit box. Again, that uh, preceded uh, LFR's move to Toyota and Matt DiBenedetto. Uh, but that was an interesting scenario in which I, I think Travis Mack was giving the team exactly what it needed to accomplish a goal. Uh, I don't think the team appreciated the manner in which he was doing it. Yeah. And, and John Leonard, young guy, uh, bounced around a little bit. Uh, I was always a fan of his work because uh, he would talk me through some of the stuff in the truck series and had uh, had the helmet for Todd Gillen for a little bit, but didn't last long, unfortunately, but then went over with Stuart Friesen, if I remember, as uh, kind of a you know second-in-command head engineer type, and they um, proved a lot of speed over there. So I hope he can still climb the ladder. The, a young, smart crew chief in John Leonard. Yeah. And, and I think there's going to be a kind of a theme here. The guys that got replaced of, of the ones, um, that did Travis Mack is right now the only one who actually gained another crew chief job. Hmm. And the, the, the flip side of that is John Leonard is the only replacement to not still be a crew chief or not have plans to be on a cup series pit box in 2022. So I find that interesting. I think that there was a lot of good things that year for LFR. If you didn't pay attention to the speed, which I know is kind of the whole point of, of auto racing. But I I like to say that these kinds of teams are tactically good, even though they're not mechanically good. They had the tactics down. It just depends on the philosophy and the philosophy of the owner was that they didn't want to take these unnecessary uh, risks uh, trying to long pit in the hopes of a caution. They wanted to race uh, a more true style of NASCAR racing. John Leonard delivered that. It was pragmatic and it was successful in improving the average finish despite not actually getting faster. All right. Good stuff. Next up, 2019. David, this is a big one. The driver... Jimmy Johnson. Uh, this is the first year post Chad Knaus, uh, at least uh, Chad and uh, Jimmy splitting up and in the role for the first time in Jimmy's career, really uh, as a new crew chief, uh, Kevin Mendering, but Kevin Mendering only lasted 21 races that season replaced by Cliff Daniels. Yes. The Cliff Daniels currently the crew chief for the number five team and Kyle Larson and David, this was uh, right when uh, our era was starting to hit at positive regression. So if I remember correctly, uh, the speed of the 48 picked up when young Cliff Daniels took the helm. And uh, we know how that's worked out so far. But tell us about this move specifically in 2019. Yeah, and let's pay attention to that point because that's a good one. The speed rank moved from 17th uh, between Jimmy Johnson and Kevin Mendering to 12th with Johnson and Cliff Daniels. And that is a Huge leap, uh, especially in the middle of the season. But because they got faster doesn't mean they got better. Their average finish dropped from 15.1 to 20.5. 
In terms of strategy, Daniels was on par with Mendering. 62% to 61% was the shift there. And I think one of the big dynamics that came out of that was that for a while, uh, Jimmy Johnson wasn't supplying ample feedback. He had kind of gotten out of that before Kevin Mendering, but really with Chad Canals and Cliff Daniels uh, made it clear to draw that back out. And if you listen to him on the scanner with Kyle Larson, he kind of does the same. He he wants to stoke communication, certainly during a race and from the sounds of it uh, away from the track in the debrief room, just to understand everything that he possibly can about the car. And that was clear in, in the, the second part of the season um, in a playoff stretch where they were not participants, they were significantly faster. And that uh, that did provide some optimism for Jimmy going into his uh, his final year and certainly set up Cliff Daniels to be uh, a crew chief. I, I, I think he's going to be in the Cup Series for the long haul. Yeah. When you look back on on. Maybe from the Hendrick perspective, I mean, is that a, a sense of, you know, they had Cliff Daniels on the bench and, you know, he was a younger guy, so they didn't put him in immediately, right? I mean, you just wonder, what if they had started the season with Cliff Daniels instead of Kevin Mendrick? What if they had gone with maybe a riskier, younger guy? And I wonder if that just sways any decision making for Hendrick or any team in the future. That's a big what if, uh, mm. because Kevin Mendrick came up from the Xfinity series from Junior Motorsports. Um, he didn't have experience calling a cup race and we see some of these, uh, you look, some of these guys, uh, truly struggle. We've seen Rudy Fugel, uh, struggle at times this year, just in terms of his strategy. Sometimes you're a natural, not, but not everyone's Chris Gabehart. And I, I think Mendering, I don't know that he was especially bad, but it was on his watch that the team sort of fell into this malaise and you have one of the greatest drivers to ever do it. It felt like he was paired with a caretaker crew chief and that's not what was needed. And it was painfully obvious that it was going to become problematic for Jimmy Johnson to make the playoffs. Uh, So this was a desperation heave. And again, average finish dropped. It did not yield the immediate impact that the organization probably thought it would, but the long-term impact is lasting. And uh, that's probably something we need to talk about uh, here uh, in a few questions. Yeah. Yeah. Good stuff. All right. um, Let's move on. Next one, 2020. Uh, This one, I don't know. It didn't make a ton of waves with me, but potentially it can in the future. And what I'm getting at is the driver was Matt Kenseth at the 42 car. Hard to believe uh, that happened. <laughs> uh, the crew chief, uh, the crew chief, Chad Johnson, was replaced by Phil Surgeon. Now, pound for pound, all in all, I mean, it was just a once with no Kyle Larson behind the wheel of the 42, David. Uh, it was uh, a really rough year for the 42 team as a whole. Uh, it was an elder Matt Kenseth, which I know uh, you had your issues with, even putting him behind the wheel or you know at at, at such an uh, advanced age because you know maybe there were some better options out there. But not only did they uh, have Matt Kenseth as a driver, but they had Chad Johnson as the crew chief, and then replaced him with Phil Surgeon, who is still crew chiefing now. So maybe we can connect some dots there. But let's start with 2020. What happened when the change happened in 2020? This was the 22nd fastest team 
Uh, Matt Kenseth paired with Chad Johnston. Phil Surgeon replaced Johnston, and they remained the 22nd fastest team. The uh, position retention rate on green flag pit cycles dropped from 61%, which was something I uh, uh, quibbled with. I I really thought Chad Johnston, both for Larson previously and for Kenseth, needed to do better in supplementing his, uh, his driver's weakness. Didn't quite do it. It actually got worse on Phil Surgeon's watch. It dropped to 53%, as did the average finish uh, from 20.6 with Chad Johnston to 22.1 with Phil Surgeon. Uh, We saw an uptick in the team's performance. Ross Chastain had a lot to do with that. I think Chip Ganassi Racing finding speed uh, specifically on 550 tracks, at least on the first run uh, races of this year. They looked better on the second go-rounds at 750 tracks during the playoffs, But uh, a lot of things up in the air. We don't know if we're going to see Phil Surgeon in a crew chief role next year. I feel like we should. I think he's done enough to get another look. But uh, what he did, what that that positivity that didn't come with Kenseth, that came with Chastain behind the wheel. So this was sort of a uh, a change that may have been uh, one for the future. That that may have had twenty twenty one earmarked because uh for the year 2020 this was sort of a fruitless move yeah but nothing beats experience right so hope maybe surgeon got something out of that that time in 2020 that has benefited the 42 car uh, in 2021 it's fair that is fair <laughs> and i think we're going to see that with the next crew chief that we're going to talk about yeah. but it it strikes me that that is Sort of a path, um, kind of like the uh, you know late season call ups uh, used to be for baseball. If your team's out of playoff contention, bring in the minor leaguers, bring in the guys that don't have experience in order to get that experience and to prepare them for the new year. You can argue that that is exactly what we saw with Cliff Daniels, and you can argue that that is what we saw with Phil Surgeon. And potentially that's what we're seeing with uh, uh, this year with Jonathan Hassler. Yes, let's get right to it. 2021, the driver, Matt Benedetto, the crew chief, Greg Irwin, replaced by Jonathan Hassler. And this was a switch that was uh, immediately recognized and praised by the driver, Matt Benedetto. Uh, even even if the, the results, you know, in terms of whatever, wins and top fives, what have you, weren't there, Matt D, Matty D was a happier driver and wished and was not afraid to say in interviews, he wished he had pushed a lot harder, a lot earlier for a change because something clearly wasn't working with Irwin and he wished they had moved to Jonathan Hassler earlier. Uh, so, so far, and again, with still some races to go, David, give us uh, something of a, an analysis of this move. And uh, again, Hassler's not going anywhere. In fact, he's upgrading next year. So uh, we'll talk about that as well. But let's start with 2021. This is going to be one. I think a lot of folks are going to be taken aback um, by these numbers because the optics of it are that De Benedetto has done well and has been faster with Jonathan Hassler at the helm, and that is not true. Uh, the speed rank, uh, this is average median lap time, has stayed the same. 18th place is their uh, their lot in the sport right now. The position retention rate on green flag pit cycles has dropped by 10 percentage points from 53% to 43%. That is something that Jonathan Hassler is going to have to improve before he takes over for uh, for Todd Gordon on Ryan Blaney's pit box next season. 
but the average finish, which is uh, uh, tends to be the end all be all, even though we know that it's not 18.1 to 16.6. That is the improvement. I don't know that that was the improvement the team was looking for. They didn't make the playoffs. I don't know that that is the improvement that the driver was hoping for, because as of right now, he is without a job and it's not clear uh, where that potential job would come. Uh, because that uh, that average uh, finish certainly isn't helping matters. All right, so that's five years uh, of crew chief moves that we just covered. Uh, and if you were paying attention, and I hope you were, but David, I'll, let you, I'll give give the floor to you. I mean, any commonalities in the five years of changes that we saw? Is there any one takeaway that you think we should uh, walk away from this episode from when we're thinking midseason crew chief changes? Well, firstly, teams don't really get faster. Uh, it's sort of, it's sort of rare that we see this. The exception here was Cliff Daniels, uh, what he was able to do for Jimmy Johnson. And in hindsight, I know that we gave him some credit for this, but maybe we didn't give him enough because Hmm. I, I mean, we, we certainly talk him up now based on what he's doing with Kyle Larson, but looking back to his entrance into the cup series, in 2019, he pulled something off that didn't really happen in the last five years outside of him. Uh, and, and perhaps this whole situation is an outlier, or perhaps he is a superstar and <laughs> he is he is a he is a Hall of Fame crew chief in the making. And his car with Kyle Larson is the fastest in the Cup Series this year. The origins of that and this team go back to when he was a mid-season replacement who boosted an aging Jimmy Johnson five whole positions in the speed rankings. And to me, that's a big deal. Secondly, the impact. And I'm going to assume here, but I think it's safe to assume the impact of a crew chief change mid-season appears to be more mental or philosophical. Mm -hmm or anecdotal than, than anything that we normally quantify because teams, if they don't usually get faster, uh, the crew chiefs aren't necessarily better strategists as I've just read off and results don't improve by a whole lot. If they do at all, what might improve though is morale. And you made a good point with what De Benedetto was saying after his crew chief swap, Look, there are uh, three of these guys, because we don't know what's going to happen with Phil Surgeon, three of these guys are going to continue on as crew chiefs. Hassler, we mentioned, already announced as uh, as Blaney's new crew chief for next year. So these changes to me are about the relationships and not necessarily direct remedies to what was ailing these teams the most, Uh, because I think in, in reality it is very difficult to move this large of a ship in the middle of a season in order for someone to truly build a team and his or her own image. You, you need a lot of time. Uh, you need an off season. You, you need time to, to build your own cars, build a relationship with a driver. And I, I think the, the, the mid season moves, that's what this is about. It's about just granting time as opposed to, uh, immediate results. And at least that should be the expectation. Um, if it's the other, I'm not sure how realistic that is. 
Yeah, and I know in stick and ball sports, uh, the, and it's not apples to apples, I know, but there is the saying, you can't fire the players, right? So you you fire the coach sometimes, and uh, maybe in racing as well, sometimes just you can't fire the driver midseason, so you got to make a change at the top. And sometimes it's for the better, and sometimes maybe it's even better in the future. We shall see. Good discussion. David, it is time once again for an elimination race in the NASCAR Cup Series playoffs. Round two, race three. It is the Charlotte Roval. Good stuff. It's been a, a fun few years on the Roval. You know, a few years ago, it was this crazy brand new concept, and now it's kind of, kind of something we're getting used to. Uh, but a great question, David. Is the Roval actually a wild card race? That, that word wild card, it's different. You know, people like to associate it with the, the Daytonas and Talladegas of the world. Is it a wild card? What, I, what I'll say, at least, and I'll let you have the, the floor here in a second, but it certainly has wild card elements uh, in terms of the different aspects of it, right? It's a half road course, half uh, big oval. Uh, we were out there this week. They gave us a tour with Adam Stevens and Christopher Bell and just the explanations of those damn big turtles and how big they are and how they can absolutely ruin your day if you run over them. Those are some wild card elements, but I, I don't think the role actually offers us any surprises in terms of strategy, in terms of what you need, in terms of who is good there. Uh, I don't, I don't feel like we're going to see a surprise winner suddenly at the Roval because it's this big wild card race. So there, there's nothing wild to me from that aspect of it. David, what do you say? Uh, yeah, when I think of wild card, I guess the, the word I associate it with is randomness. And I don't know that what we're seeing just at, at least in terms of who's running up front, who's winning these races. I, I don't associate that with random. Uh, so, so in my opinion, it's not a wild card race, although I do agree with you that it throws a lot of curveballs at teams, but if we look at what has occurred in the last few races and we consider that cup drivers and teams are not outright idiots, uh, they, they, (laughs) they tend to learn as the years progress and, and Joey Logano spoke about the Roval, uh, this way recently, they've had a few races there. They know what it is now. Uh, Kyle Busch, same sort of thing. He compared it to driving on a parking lot. He doesn't appreciate the track whatsoever, but he knows what to expect. And while the anticipation for this race can be something that is on par to maybe the Indianapolis road course race that we saw earlier this year, I, I think the cup driver's know enough of what to expect that it isn't going to devolve into utter disaster. Uh, They know what the track is. They know how to game plan for it accordingly. So uh, while the track offers these wildcard elements, I don't think any of those elements are surprises, if that makes sense. And if we look at the two winners, Ryan Blaney and Chase Elliott, Chase Elliott has, of course, won twice. And we look at the organizations that have led the most laps. They are Hendrick Motorsports and Team Penske. We're kind of seeing the same guys and teams filter to the front here. Uh, Yes, this is a track position race. And yes, we're going to see some varying strategies as you do on road courses. But for the most part, there haven't been surprise winners or really any surprise performances. We have the benefit of hindsight for that, but this isn't nearly the free for all as it could be billed. This is a stadium road course. 
it does have its shortcomings, but what it doesn't have is some sort of random backdoor to a shock finish. And I doubt anyone this weekend will fall backwards into a good result. All right. What has mattered the most at the Roval uh, in, in the few races that we have had? What, what what stands out? You mentioned track position. We talk about speed a lot, mm-hmm. restarts, all that stuff. What has mattered the most? Well, the fastest car in a Roval race is actually yet to win a Roval really? race. Yeah. But don't let that guide you the wrong way because the second fastest car won this in 2019. The fourth fastest car won it last year. Speed matters, but it requires other things happening, uh, one of them being expert driving. So in, in each of the three Roval races, the eventual winner had a sky-high adjusted pass efficiency for the race. Uh, Chase Elliott turned in a 64.29% showing last year. So again, track position race, if you can move, the, the world is at your fingertips, uh, it should be said that Martin Truex, also quite good on road courses, was not passed once on the racetrack under green last year. They lost 26 positions across a green flag pit cycle. They were also caught speeding on pit road that set them back. And I think back to last year's race, I recall William Byron in a good position. He was caught speeding on pit road. Uh, that was the general theme last year, drivers and teams beating themselves, There were good performances all over the track. Chase Elliott was one of them, but uh, in a track position race, one slip up can doom a driver, especially if it's something that occurs in the late stages. So it's best to avoid that. All right. Uh, We, you know, keep documenting for good reason uh, how fast uh, and good (laughs) Team Hendrick is, especially with Chase Elliott's success. But what are they doing on road courses uh, better than any other organization? Uh, We've praised their speed a lot. I know not only Chase Elliott, but also William Byron. Uh, Kyle Larson has two wins on road courses this year. Uh, So they're not lacking for much on road courses. What are they doing better than other teams? You, you said it. That's it. It's the, the cars are fast, but the, the drivers drive them well and they pass efficiently. Uh, I, I've already mentioned Elliott's passing, but William Byron last year had an adjusted pass efficiency of over 66%. That's incredibly high. Alex Bowman produced a high surplus passing value. It's impossible to argue against Hendrick having some sort of mechanical advantage right now on road courses. Uh, Kyle Busch last weekend at Talladega expressly said that that was due to track attack, the Hendrick Motorsports high performance uh, driving venture that I once wrote about personally, having toured the shop and in speaking with those guys, I don't know that that's totally the case that's creating the advantage. I also don't know that it matters if it is an advantage because NASCAR deemed it legal. So in that sense, Joe Gibbs racing needs its own high performance driving experience. So that's an excuse only to an extent, but Regardless, I think we need to consider that Hendrick is fortunate in having four terrific road racers. William Byron, tutored by Max Pappas, a former Rolex 24 race winner. Larson and Bowman, tutored by Scott Speed. They've worked diligently with him this year. Chase Elliott claims he doesn't know why he's so good. I think there's more to the story there. I hope that story gets told one day, but he's very good. So while Hendrick has this mechanical advantage, the drivers are efficient road racers in what used to be a niche part of NASCAR that 
with the increased presence of these tracks on the schedule is becoming more and more noticeable. All right, it's time. Our picks to win the Roval. David, you go first. Who you got? My pick is Kyle Larson. Oh! Uh, I think you can make the argument that he should have won this race in 2018. Uh, he had the fastest car yes. that day. He led a race high 47 laps that day. And he was driving for Chip Ganassi Racing. So he's got a Hendrick car now. Uh, I like his chances. Uh, he doesn't need to contend for stage points. The win is the only eh, true goal, necessary goal. And I think he's in a grand position to get it. All right. I am going with Chase Elliott. The strategy part of me uh, it worries a little bit because on these road courses, it can be hard to get both stage points and track position to win. So that worries me a little But Look, Chase Elliott, uh, you mentioned how good he is passing. So if he does have to get some poor track position, he can pass his way out of it. Chase Elliott simply just too fast this year. Too many points scored. Too much history to pick against him. So I'm picking Chase Elliott. I know it seems like a layup, but that's where I'm going. Cool, David? I think there are a handful of guys that are so good at passing on road courses that their strength nullifies any crew chief weakness. Elliott is certainly within that bunch. And also, it's tough to pick against the uh, the two-time reigning winner. I know. Easy, easy layup for me. So contrarian contenders, our contrarian pick, either for the win or someone maybe punch above their weight class a little bit. Who are you taking, David? I'm taking Eric Jones. He finished third last year in the car Christopher Bell will drive this weekend, but Jones has acquitted himself well this season on road courses. He has a 2.01 surplus passing value. Uh, That is higher than that of Chase Elliott. Of course, Jones is doing this in the middle of the field, but he's turning it into some finishes. He finished seventh at Indianapolis, 11th at Sonoma, and 14th on the Daytona road course, all for Richard Petty Motorsports. And I think that role continues. All right. I'm going with Kurt Busch. Uh, Just looking on motorsportsanalytics.com, he has top eight speed on the road courses this year. In terms of points scored on the road courses, he is third. Uh, This track, something similar to the Daytona road course, uh, according to Christopher Bell, the most similar. Uh, And guess what? Kurt Busch finished fourth there earlier this year. So I think Kurt is a clear contender and maybe surprises us on a Sunday. Fair enough? I think he might be a contender for wins each of the next three weeks, given the schedule goes to uh, Texas and Kansas mile and a half tracks. It could be a favorable three weeks for Kurt Busch. Good stuff. We will see who comes out on top. Good stuff, David. Episode 123 of Positive Regression. Don't forget, we are available on all major podcast platforms, no matter your device. Our entire back catalog of episodes is available for free at posregpod.com. If you like what you're hearing, please leave a rating or a review. That stuff helps in spreading the word. We, of course, notice, and it is so appreciated. If you have any questions, we'd love to hear them. Reach out to us on Twitter at posregpod, P-O-S-R-E-G-P-O-D. David, you're always working hard. What do you got this week? This week for NBC Sports, I look at how former dirt open wheel drivers perform on road courses in NASCAR. There is a rich history dating back to Tim Richmond and Jeff Gordon and Tony Stewart, but I interviewed Kyle Larson and Christopher Bell uh, this week and shed some light on their recent road racing performances and why that uh, formative dirt racing skill set seems to translate. 
I will also look at the stat darlings to this point in the NASCAR Cup Series playoffs. That will be posted on Sunday. So please check both of those out at nascar.nbcsports.com. Good stuff for myself. Make sure you check out my social channels at Alan Cavana on Twitter, uh, Copa Cavana on Instagram, and of course my Facebook page. If you can, uh, great videos from Speed Sport. If you're listening on Thursday morning, thank you for being a subscriber. Make sure you go over to my pages and check out the latest edition of Quick Hits. Uh, kind of set your the, the menu, give you the menu for all the racing over the weekend, not just NASCAR. Uh, I promise you will learn a lot. There's always something big going on beyond the world of NASCAR, and uh, it, it's a fun video. Uh, make sure you listen to PRN this weekend. I will be in the pits at Charlotte Motor Speedway uh, at the Roval. Uh, so happy to be a part of that team, and I'm looking forward to that. And before the green flag, make sure you watch Fantasy Live on NASCAR.com. All the good advice for setting your lineup. We are getting down to the nitty-gritty. You are running out of starts with your favorite drivers. We give you what I hope is some quality advice when it comes to asset allocation for your fantasy team. All the good stuff. Make sure you check that out. NASCAR.com Fantasy Live. And thank you, as always, for listening to Positive Regression. This has been Episode 123. For David Smith, I'm Alan Kavana. We'll see you next week. It looks a little different for everyone. For some, it's mom and dad. For others, roommates who feel like family. And for others, it's your significant other, their golfing buddies, your children, a high school soccer team starting lineup, and oh look, they're all taking you up on the offer to stay for dinner, really testing the limits of that phrase, the more the merrier. But no matter where you call home, GEICO makes it easy to bundle and save on home and car insurance. Easier than making three frozen pizzas and assorted frozen veggies into a cohesive meal. 